human creatures are conflicted creatures. We want multiple things, and that's not a bad thing, right? That's a part of being human is that we tussle with what is most important. And, and that pain of the tussle isn't something to be avoided. It's something to ask ourselves, like, what information here is important? I feel conflicted between multiple things that matter. So it is both true that it's hard to be pulled in multiple directions and that the more directions that we're pulled in is something of an indicator of having a full, meaningful, rich life. They go together. That's Yale Schoenbrunn, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Yale Schoenbrunn. Yale is a clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, co-host of Psychologists Off the Clock, and author. Yale's academic research explores the interaction between relationship problems and mental health conditions. She has authored chapters in several books and has written dozens of scientific articles. In her private practice, writing and podcasting, Yale uses evidence-based science to help individuals and couples learn to manage work, parenting, and marriage in more effective and fulfilling ways. She draws upon treatments that integrate ancient Eastern philosophy and scientifically-backed practices. Yale's writing on work, parenting, and relationships has appeared in places like the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. And she has a new book called Work, Parent, Thrive. 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. Some of the topics we explore include what it was like for Yale to bring her own life experience into her book, Work, Parent, Thrive, the difference between approaching problems from the inside out versus outside in, the challenges associated with balancing multiple important life roles, the books, ideas, and people that influenced her book, the importance of removing things from our lives instead of exclusively adding, how ACT is integrated into Yale's clinical work with couples, and we end by exploring both of our experiences podcasting. It was really cool getting to talk with Yale. I've had uh, the rest of the psychologists off the clock uh, folks on, and uh, Yale was uh, last but certainly not least. I've listened to so many of her interviews, and I love her new book, and it was uh, really great getting to speak with her. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Yale. You rock. And thank you all for being here and listening to the show. It means a lot to me. Uh, I look forward to continuing to do this for you. And uh, yeah, I already have another episode recorded. It was actually somebody that uh, was discussed in this episode that Yale was uh, very kind to connect me to. So uh, we have that to look forward to. Thank you all again for being here. And let's get into the conversation with Yale Schoenbrunn. This was another example of a conversation I wish 
we had started recording right from the start because we just really jumped into it. But uh, you had asked if I had any kids and how that might frame the conversation today. And one of the things I was thinking while reading your book was how applicable this was even to me. Like, I don't have children yet and I, I want them, but even, you know, I'm engaged and I have a home and I have a dog and how much all of this was still really relevant for just kind of like balancing a family and balancing work. So uh, just wanted to put that out there. Yeah. In some ways, I think it's kind of a shame that the title of the book it has parenting in the title because I think it is widely applicable. A lot of the science that we ha- that I explore throughout the book really applies to anybody who has multiple demanding roles, which is most of us. And as you're saying, you know, if you're a pet owner and a friend and a child and a partner and an employee and um, an employer, then you have a lot of competing demands and that is hard. And that is also a beautiful thing that has many gifts embedded in it that we sometimes overlook. And that, that really is the, the heart of the book, even though I do spend a lot of time talking about the particular role of parenting and work. Yeah. And while it can be applied generally, and I agree, you know, there is something nice, I imagine, being spoken to directly as a parent um, in this. So maybe let's use this as a launching pad to just explore your book and, you know, your life and how that intersects. Because one of the things I really liked about the way you wrote it was you really added a lot of your own life experience to it that gave it this like pulse of sincerity and like aliveness throughout and while it was coupled with science and skills, I loved how you added your own real like vulnerability to that. And so I guess I was wondering, what's it like for you to to write a book and add your life in that way? What was that like? Scary. <laughs> it's definitely scary because I think in the role of being a therapist and also an academic, I, we're so careful to kind of shroud our more personal vulnerable side for for very good purpose. I mean, at least more specifically in the therapist role, you don't want to bring too much of your personal vulnerable side because it can overtake what's going on for your client. And of course, you know, you're there to serve their needs and bringing in authenticity is so helpful, but you, you want to be really measured about it. It's interesting too, and I'm curious what your experience is like as a co-host, as a, not a co-host, I'm a co-host, you're just the host. (laughs) And so it's all your thing. I was listening to your recent episode with Diana Hill, who's a friend and colleague of mine. She Mm -hmm. she used to co-host my podcast, Psychologist Off the Clock, and now she's doing her own thing. And she asked you some personal questions where you really brought in some of your vulnerability and you kind of said, oh, it's kind of uncomfortable. So I think it was uncomfortable for me and I did it. The beautiful thing about writing, and she kind of caught you off guard, but the beautiful thing about writing is you can really think about it. How much of this do I want to reveal versus what parts don't feel like they would be serviceable or would be just too vulnerable for me? Um, And I actually really liked how you handled it in the moment with Diana. And I I am kind of curious if you've had any sort of uh, follow-up thoughts about how you, how much of your vulnerability you like to, you are interested in sharing through your podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, I think it's ever evolving and where I try to rest is not to share anything. Like, like, how do I want to phrase it? I guess something I always keep in mind is when I hit those choice points where I feel like we're touching something where 
the black and white options to me seem like telling the my truth that maybe I don't feel ready to share in a public way or skirt beating around the bush or skirting around it or lying. I try to remember there's kind of two layers to the truth. And one layer is maybe giving specific content to something. And another layer is just to be honest with like, this is really complicated. Yeah. And so I try to like stay committed to being honest when the opportunities arise, but to honor kind of where I'm at and my willingness to share in a public way. And it's kind of fluid. And sometimes I don't really know where that's at, but... I love that. I love separating out sort of the emotional part versus the content part. So another part that you shared in your conversation with Diana that really relates to the book is you might feel comfortable sharing some of your content, but not have permission from other people who are involved Mm. in the storyline. So in the case of the book, I share a lot of about myself. I'm pretty careful about what I share about my children But I do share a bit about, for example, what happened when my father passed away and my siblings Mm. and my mom were very involved in that incident. And again, what was nice about writing is I was able to pass it by them. I was able to talk to them and say, you know, I'm thinking about writing about what happened in the really complicated events around my dad's passing. You guys are involved in that story. And they were okay with it. And then I said, okay, but you should read it. (laughs) And they read it. And they all gave their blessing. It was, it, mm-hmm. I was able to do that. So I think your point is so important that a lot of that vulnerability can, it, it's helpful to be able to think it through. It's easier to do that with writing because you can really take your time where you can't as much in a sort of spontaneous conversation. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I, and I love the way that you, you write about your own experience in a way that, yeah, you use such good imagery and depth. Like even the way that you open the book, I felt like I was like creating such a vivid movie in my head of you like sitting at your desk with your, your kids screaming in the other room and just like, I don't know, it was really cool how you were able to share that to give such a rich image in one's head as you're reading to build off, like relate to and then build off of when the more practical parts come in. Oh, thank you. That's such a huge compliment. <laughs> One question thing to maybe talk about here is you talk about navigating working parenthood from the outside in versus the inside out. And that sort of sets the foundation for what the book's going to be about. Uh, Could you share a little bit about what the difference between outside in and inside out is? Yeah, definitely. So this is a huge part of acceptance and commitment therapy too. It's this idea that we often want to solve human problems the way that we would solve problems that exist out in the world. So uh, the metaphor that I, one of the metaphors that I use in the book is we, we often sort of encounter a problem of like, this is really painful or this is really hard. And we think, okay, well, how would we solve it? And we approach it like we would solve a dishwasher. Like, okay, what part mm. needs to be replaced? What's going wrong? And how do we fix it? And that doesn't work for human problems because they're not solvable in the same way. We can't just replace a part because many of the pains that we experience as humans are sort of fundamental to being human and they're, they're wired in for a reason. So when you feel sad or in the case of role conflict, when you feel your roles tugging in different directions, that's not a flaw of this system that should be replaced. It's sort of like a cue. And so we don't 
want to approach it the way that we would approach a broken dishwasher, we need to approach it in a different way. And the inside, so the outside-in solutions are the approaches that we would take for a more outside-of-the-human-body issue. So even like at the systems level, if something's wrong with policy, then we, we want to like create policy that works better. Again, if something's wrong with your car, you want to figure out what's wrong and replace that part. With the human, it's more like a living system. You have to figure out what that pain is telling you, what information, how, how that information might guide you, and also what parts need to be tolerated and what part needs to be changed. And so there's a lot more nuance there. And so what, what I think is really clarifying is to ask that question of what part of this is an outside problem that can be fixed? What part of this is a human problem and needs to be handled with more human-oriented management strategies? And so in, in the book, what I talk a lot about is that there are some things that do need to be changed, right? When it comes to role conflict, there are some ways that we can make the systems that we live in much more humane, and we, we really should. We need to do that. And at the same time, there's these more fundamental human issues that exist when we are participating in multiple demanding roles. And those aren't ones that can or even should be fixed, but rather handled using more psychological strategies. And that's where psychology is really strong, is in handling these inside problems of human pain or just the nature of being human that can be kind of uncomfortable, but also beautiful at the same time. Mm, yeah, that's very well put. And another sort of backbone to this is maybe dispelling this cultural myth that there is this perfect work-life balance that one can attain and that we should aspire to. You sort of deconstruct that and provide other mindsets around that. Could you share a little bit about a bit about that? Yeah. Well, and this is kind of an interesting thing just from a personal point of view. I'm actually starting to work on a new book that goes more into depth about this really provocative kind of huge social experiment that actually my father was a part of where he um, grew up on a community called a kibbutz. They're uh, communities that exist in Israel. And most people outside of Israel haven't heard of them, but they're basically socialist, communist kind of agricultural communities that were designed to really solve a lot of the work-family balance problems. The theory behind, uh, there was a lot of theory, but one of the ideas was that women were yoked to the domestic sphere in ways that were really unfair. And so in order to free women from the domestic sphere and equalize the gender roles, they created this communal child-rearing system. And that was a really intentional design and sort of like trying to create this kind of utopia, both for parents who wanted to work and participate in meaningful relationships in the family, and also for kids to be raised in this way where they could have access to all the things that they needed, have close relationships with their parents, have close relationships with their peers, have independence, but also like safety in this tight-knit community. And what they found was that there's so much science on this, and it's really fascinating. But one element that I think is really critical is that parents, particularly mothers, weren't satisfied with this setup. They wanted more contact with their kids. So in this communal child-rearing setup, children were raised in these children's houses. So my father, for example, he was born in a hospital. And then when he got back to the kibbutz where, he was, where his 
family lived, he was immediately put into a children's house. So he never lived with his parents, even though they lived in the same community. He lived with same age peers from the time that he was, you know, a week Whoa. old. This so is wild. It, yeah, it's pretty wild. And he loved his parents and he loved his independence. But what's so interesting, and so as part of this book, I'm interviewing all the members of his family and going through these fascinating family archives, as well as the social science that was conducted on these different kibbutzim. And my, one of his sister still lives on the kibbutz and she raised her a couple of her children in this same format before the children's houses were dismantled another one of the sisters moved away and she has been so fun to interview she, my aunt um, and she says you know she wanted to be in the same house she wanted to put her children to bed they weren't allowed to put their children to bed so it worked for some people and it didn't work for others but on balance more mothers were really dissatisfied with the ways that they were able to connect to their children. And I think that that just speaks to like, we're, we're human creatures are con conflicted creatures. We want multiple things and that's not a bad thing, right? That's a mm. part of being human is that we tussle with what is most important. And, and that pain of the tussle isn't something to be avoided. It's something to ask ourselves, like what information here is important? I feel conflicted between multiple things that matter and how do I want to go through that? Another, I'm, I'm going to get a little long-winded here, so I apologize, but another piece of the th that I think is so interesting is that research as far back as the late 1800s looks at role obligations. And what we know about role obligations is that we get pulled in different directions, but at the same time, the more role obligations we have, the higher our well-being is likely to be. The less, mm. for example, in this particular early study, the less risk for suicide that we have. So it is both true that it's hard to be pulled in multiple directions and that the more directions that we're pulled in is something of an indicator of having a full, meaningful, rich life. They go together. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We need, it's like you need a certain number of constraints to uh, help you know how to live essentially like know where to go and how to spend your time like on one level we see constraints as like a problem and something to avoid and on another level they kind of give us the foundation to live our lives exactly exactly yeah and and it's hard so i think that like self-compassion can be along for the ride as we navigate those constraints but where I think we can gain more clarity is realizing that it's not a flaw of this system. It's something to pay attention to and to really use as a cue. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Like I, I feel those all the time. Like at the end of the day, when maybe I'm done with sessions and I have notes to do and there's maybe some reading I'd like to do or preparation. And then I look over and I see my dog looking at me and I know he wants to go for a hike and I want to go for a hike with him. And in that moment, there's a way to relate with that as like some area of like severe frustration about how the different things I have to do, or it can just be rep like a, a symbol of that I have two things that I really care about in my life. And while it might be difficult right now, there's a path forward where they can both be honored, but it takes like a switch of how we view our responsibilities and our roles. Yes. I love that example. And it's such a great example where mindset really makes the difference because on the one hand, you could have a mindset of this is so unfair. I have so much to do. Here's my dog asking for my attention. Here are these notes that need to be done. How can I do it all? This is impossible. Or you can say, 
you know, I have a lot of things that are important in my life that makes for a rich and interesting life. And, and this is what I really go into in the book, is there an opportunity here that these two conflicting demands, these competing demands over my attention and my resources can actually serve me well? And in the example that you just gave, and I, I talk a bit about this in the book, it might be the case that you've been working all day and that your dog is creating some helpful pressure to take mm. a break, to yeah. help you uh, pause your work life and get outside and move your body and that that actually can feed back into your work life in very beneficial ways because now you'll have taken a break, refreshed your mind and your body and, and maybe even gain some perspective or some new insights on the work that you've done. And that when you come back, that you can actually be better at your job because you've been pressed to step away from it. So yes. these are some of the benefits that I think we sometimes overlook when we really get stuck in that mindset of conflict is bad. Yes. Yeah. And that's where something you talk a lot about in the book of just being clear about what your values are and how to honor them all is so important. Like even in that e example with my dog, and this is why a lot of this relates to me, because I feel like having a dog, <laughs> if you treat him like a child, like I do, totally. it's very similar to a lot of this stuff. They're kind of but... like a toddler that never grows up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's funny that like my niece and my dog are kind of on the same level with a lot of things right now, but she'll, she'll start to surpass him. But, uh, but yeah, even like knowing that and then also another side point here is we started off talking about Oliver Berkman and 4,000 weeks. And one of the things I really took away from is getting really clear about like the small number of things that are most important to you to help guide your life. Cause I'm the kind of person that, you know, at any given time I could want to like write a screenplay, record a new album, write a book, like, you know, just like 20 different ideas that can really pull me away. But being really clear about like the work, work I really care about music and my dog and my relationship that it allows you to do things like be in tune with how important it is to have a long walk or a hike with my dog and when we live we live close to each other and when it gets dark at four o'clock like honoring how important that is and changing your work schedule to fit around with that or you know and, and it doesn't take uh, it takes being clear about the things you actually care about and how to shift around your life to honor that to make those steps. Totally. Yeah. Values are so important. Another book, in addition to Oliver Berkman's book that I love that touches deeply on this topic, more than touches, that dives deeply into this topic is Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Mm. For, and, and what I love, he has a whole bunch of phrases that I love, but he, so he talks about separating the trivial from the non-trivial because if everything is essential, then really nothing is essential. Because as you just said, yeah. like if you want to write a screenplay and you want to do music and you want to see patients and you want to um, podcast and you want to be a great dog owner, like you're probably going to be pretty sucky at all of them yeah. because you're going to be so divided. Yeah. So if everything is the most important thing, then you're not going to do very well at anything. And then what's the function of that? It is important to figure out, to really be willing to reflect for yourself on what really matters so that you can say a more wholehearted yes to the things that really matter. And that requires saying no to the things that matter less. And that is hard. I mean, I think, you know, life is finite and that, that is why Oliver Berkman's book is so great. I mean, 4,000 weeks, his subtitle is the average human lifespan, which is sort of mind boggling. We don't have all the time in the world, but it presses us to figure out 
what we want to stand for in the time that we have, in this moment, what matters most. And that's where acceptance and commitment therapy is so useful because those kind of practices of being willing to really ask yourself, like today, what do I want to stand for in this relationship? What do I want to stand for in this role? What matters most to me, given that I can't do everything, helps us really narrow in and be deliberate about how we show up. Mm. When you were writing this book, I know it's informed by a lot of different things and act as a part of it and your own experience is part of that. Like you, you lay out 12 different skills or different areas to look at to um, not, I guess, balance these parts of life or integrate them in a helpful way is what's, how do you come up with that? Is it like looking at your own life and seeing what has worked and then writing off of that? Or is it more of like uh, <laughs> what you aspire to or how you are at your best or what you aspire? Like, how did you come up with those 12 different areas? Well, I have to tell a funny backstory, which is, um, so I, I wrote the whole manuscript and I submitted it to my editor and there wasn't a title yet. We were sort of deliberating about the title and I'm terrible at titles. So they sent me the, this title that was Work Parent Thrive and then the subtitle 12 science-backed strategies to ditch guilt, manage overwhelm, and grow connection when things like, when things, when everything feels like too much. And I saw the title, <laughs> I, I immediately wrote back to my editor, um, how did you get to 12? I had like hundreds of strategies in there. I was so confused. And I, she didn't write back right away. And then in the middle of the night, I woke up and I was like, duh, it's 12 because there's 12 chapters. <laughs> so funny. Um, so I didn't like lay into 12. I, I organized a number of different strategies um, by chapter, by, by sort of general theme. And, and they do sort of converge on a specific skill. Um, but I think it, it was really organic, to be honest. Like I was thinking about the it, the twelve strategies are organized by three into three parts. So from the head, so this is kind of like the mindset and the way that we tell stories. That's the first section, and then the second section is from the feet. It's sort of how we engage behaviorally, and there was kind of just naturally a number of different topics that I was focused on. I was thinking about practical wisdom and how we think about rest and how we get creative and how we grow connection. And a fun one that sort of emerged as I was writing the book was this remember to subtract because I had a chance to talk yeah. to a researcher whose work I absolutely love. And I was like, that needs to be its own section because it's so important. And then yeah. the third part is from the heart. So this is the, the emotional life that we have, so how we manage stress and how we grow happiness. And so it really did emerge more organically than it probably looks. I would love if I had just planned it. And I was like, 12 is a nice number. <laughs> I'll come up with that. But it was definitely, it almost like surprised me that there were only 12 and that they did feel so clear. But that's also kind of the beauty of writing is it's like sculpting. You kind of chip away and it emerges. Yes. Yeah. You just touched on one of the parts I really liked about subtracting and uh, stop doing lists and the r risk benefit analysis. Like that's all in there. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So as I said, that's really one of my favorite sections, and it wasn't one that I went in knowing that I would write. Like I was deep under contract, and Lighty Klotz, the the researcher, and he has this terrific book called Subtract. 
uh, reached out to me to come on our podcast and I read his book and, and even then I think I was, I was thinking, oh, this could be a part of it. And then we had, I interviewed him for the podcast slash for the book. And I was like, this is so cool. So his science, he has this terrific science that you can read the primary, the, the primary science in nature. It's a very cool set of mini studies. And the overarching take home from these studies is that people systematically overlook subtraction as a design option. So when you're given a, a challenge to solve, whether it's um, designing a mini golf course or planning an itinerary or making soup, if you're given various options to improve the thing and you could add or you could subtract, the default tendency for the human brain is to add. Right? And that kind of makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint because in pre-modern times, if you were under stress and you needed to solve something, it was usually because you didn't have enough calories, you didn't have enough shelter, or you didn't have enough social connections. And so it makes sense that our heavy bias is towards adding. But in modern life, that's not usually the case. And for busy people who have multiple demanding roles, more is not always the better answer. I mean, just as like if you have a closet that needs, you know, an upgrade, it's more often that you need, should remove some stuff than that you should add more junk to the closet. Mm. So, but our, but our wiring doesn't quite match modern world. What's more, and this is, this is the mini study that I found the most fascinating in the context of lives that have multiple demands, multiple demanding roles, is that when we are under cognitive overload, when we're kind of stressed out, we're even more likely to overlook subtraction as, mm. the, as the action that we could take to get to a better outcome. So if I have too many things on my calendar and I'm feeling stressed out, I'm more likely to add more things in, which is kind of bananas. <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. But that's just our tendency. And again, there's this evolutionary reason for it, but it just doesn't work that well in modern life. And so what's cool about understanding that science is it gives you a, a set of tools, right, that starts with awareness, like that sense of over chaos, over chaotically busy lives, and um, that can really cause us to keep adding and awareness of that tendency can help us to build practices and they have to be practices because it's not going to be automatic of pausing and saying i have too much going on i know my mind is going to want me to add in it's sort of like my my chaotic closet what i want to do is like go to the container store and buy more containers what i really should do is remove some stuff give it away and recognizing that helps me be more deliberate in those practices. So Lighty Klotz suggests to stop doing list. I really love just pairing. It's sort of like the temptation bundling. Whenever you think about adding something, ask yourself, what could you take away so that you're not mm. exclusively adding? And then I also really love sort of the seasonal clean. <laughs> this is true. I do this with my kids' closets and they participate in it. Um, but I try to do this with my calendar every so often of like, okay, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. What needs to go, right? I've been adding a lot. So what needs to go? And doing those kinds of practices more regularly, making them habit is a really helpful tool. And again, it starts with that awareness. It's not going to happen naturally. Mm, I love that. It's so interesting how that seems to be such a um, innate thing that our minds want us to do 
across a bunch of different domains. Cause even, yeah, we tend to overlook space or undervalue space and emptiness. And even with, when you're making music, the tendency can be to like, what more can I add to make this song better? When really sometimes taking things away is, uh, you know, more powerful than adding something else. And, or even we do this thing and like when we, uh, in the post-production end, there's something called the EQ. Sorry if you know this. I don't know if you do music at all, but it's like where you, you get like a, you get to look at the whole range of frequency and then you adjust where you want to add or eliminate different parts of the sound frequency because it changes how you experience the music on the listening end. And the tendency for most people is like, okay, so where along this frequency should I add more and more? When really there's another whole um, philosophy around doing an EQ where it's taking things off. It's all just like taking away that actually can enrich the listening experience. But our first thought is always what more, what more frequency can I add instead of what can I take away? So just an interesting parallel. That's so cool. And actually you definitely should talk to Lighty because he has a section in his book and I'm kind of a music dead, fully admit that. Um, So I'm probably going to even misremember it just because it doesn't fit into any framework that I have because I don't know much about music, but he has a section where he talks about, I think it was a Bruce Springsteen album that was like really clean and sort of in some ways kind of empty, but like one of his most powerful albums Mm. and, and how rare that is exactly for the reason that you're talking about. It, it, it really does go across domains, like your closet, your calendar, your, what you're making for dinner tonight, music. And, and so I think, you know, in lives where you have a lot of stuff going on, this is a really good bias to be aware of because it really can cause a lot of clutter. Yeah, it kind of goes along with that outside-in uh, mindset that you're talking about. And you give a good example uh, in the beginning of the book, I think, uh, where if somebody's, I forget how you talk about it, but um, somebody's feeling down, so you go out and you you get a new car, but you need to get like a new credit card in order to pay for it. And so now to keep up with that, you like take up a side job and it's just kind of this like infinite adding loop you can get to find some homeostasis in life where if like when you first when you first meet whatever that pain is instead of turning into adding maybe there's another approach that you know is counterintuitive to our instincts totally yeah that was that was an example that i sort of gave of of like this cycle that can really get out of control so quickly of like, we have a problem and we solve it. And then we, there's often like a new thing to solve and something to solve after that. Um, and you could think of it differently. Like, you know, if you have a garden that you're growing and one of your plants looks a little frail, you know, the tendency is like, okay, go to the store and buy some nutrients or feed it more water or, um, you know, call another expert and, you know, just like the more, more, more when, you know, it's so helpful to just pause in front of that plant and like watch it and mm. be curious, like, is that plant sort of giving you some information? And then what might be true is that plant either needs to just be left alone or maybe needs some pruning. Like there's a bunch of different subtractive options that we tend to fail to consider because our, yes. again, our minds are just so wired to see what we should be adding. Um, yes. But it's, 
you know, that pause and that curiosity and that willingness to, to be more deliberate about considering, you know, are there things that I can take away to create a better outcome is, is it's just like a whole new tool set that you can have at your disposal. If you allow yourself to be more deliberate about considering it. Yes. Yeah. I, I, th- I think I, f- I see this show up a lot clinically with clients and I'm, I'm sure you do too. And uh, what I'm about to say doesn't mean I'm against any one of these things in and of themselves, but sometimes you can see clients really stuck in that, even with their own mental health or emotional well-being, like with like, you know, taking a medication and then that has a side effects. You take this medication and then you try out this type of uh, healing thing and then this one and then you try out the yoga class and then you try out this and someone's life can get so full of ways to try to like um fix or heal some underlying thing when and again none of those things are inherently wrong or bad they all have their place but like maybe in the beginning if you could kind of get back to the the base layer of that there was maybe a more um simple approach that could have been from this subtractive measure that could have um been given much more balance to one's life totally yeah i i think we do we complexify everything when sometimes it could be more simple. And as you're saying, it's not that we should only remove. And I think maybe that's an important point is like adding is not bad, but it just works better if we make sure to be more deliberate about complementing it with subtracting, because otherwise we end up in that sort of, you know, cornucopia of medications and we're not even sure what's causing the side effect and what's helping anymore. Um, And some of my favorite prescribers are those that are willing to kind of peel back to, you know, what, once they see like, oh, wow, there are a lot of medications in this person's profile and still they're experiencing a lot of symptoms. Could we pause and just peel it back a little bit to make sure that we know what's happening and that we're not kind of adding insult to injury? Yeah. And, and there's that just temptation to kind of keep adding. So, so it, it really takes like a lot of discipline and willingness to kind of go the opposite direction of what our brain might be guiding us towards. Yeah. Well, you still see clients, right? You still mm-hmm. have a practice. Yes. What's, I, uh, I specialize sort in of, couples therapy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. We, the connection's kind of shaken up a little, oh, but it's still good. Is it okay yeah. for you overall? Yes. Okay. Yeah, overall good. All right. Good. Um, so yeah, you still have a practice. What what sort of like clients do you see, or what do you have like specialties, or like what kind of issues do you tend to work on? Or so I am at heart a relationship researcher, which is kind of interesting. I wrote a book about working parenthood, but the the secret sauce of my approach to working parenthood is that I see roles of multiple uh, lives with multiple competing roles as being in relationship, that the roles are in relationship to one another. So I sort of just, I think I'm like a relationship hammer and like the world is a relationship nail to me. (laughs) Um, I see everything in relational terms. So I see couples, but I also do a lot of parent coaching. Um, I don't do as much individual therapy anymore um, because I just really love thinking about relationships. Uh, And I, so in my practice, I see a lot of couples who have experienced infidelity or who are just unhappy in their marriages. I do some premarital counseling, um, a lot of communication help, um, you know, working with sexual intimacy and, and various issues that are 
common for couples. And then I also do uh, with couples a lot of parent coaching. Mm. Do you, uh, do you, are you grounded in like an act approach when you work with couples? Yeah. So I, I would say I kind of draw on two different approaches that are really parallel to one another. So I do integrative behavioral couples therapy, which is, um, sort of in line with Neil Jacobson and Andy Christensen have this model that balances change approaches with acceptance approaches. It's very parallel with acceptance and commitment therapy. And then I do a lot of pretty straight acceptance and commitment therapy kind of interventions as well. Hmm. Is that something, cause there, there's not a ton on using act in couples therapy. I know Russ Harris wrote a book and he's yeah. done some trainings and I'm sure other people have. Yeah. Robin Walser has a book too. Uh, how did you, uh, how did you like learn how to do that effectively? Was it from learning from other people or was it using act like individually first and then just seeing couples as, you know, the unit and just trust, you know, like how did you integrate that? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, I was trained more officially in IBCT and integrative behavioral couples therapy. I actually came into act a bit late in my career. I didn't learn it in graduate school. I got exposed to it through just, conferences. And then I started reading all about ACT and I was like, this approach just fits me. I mean, I think there's so many cool evidence-based models that you could do that, that really are great models. And, um, you know, I don't want to say ACT is better than any others, but for me, just philosophically, it fits so well. Uh, so I started drawing on it and and actually, I remember early on in the podcast, I interviewed uh, Abby Lev, who has a book that combines schema therapy and ACT for couples. Mm. Um, so that was, I started using a lot of tools from that. So I think it just kind of grew over time and I kept sort of pulling on different uh, books and practitioners' ways of doing it and um, yeah, it kind of grew organically. I'm noticing a theme that I don't have a lot of planfulness. It just kind of happens over time. <laughs> then hey, approach to treatment. <laughs> that's how I function too. It's like maybe you could try to like place some intention or uh, narrative over it, but a lot of times these things are just sort of unfolding in a way that we don't necessarily have a lot of agency over, even though we think we do. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a post hoc explanation for how I got here. I could make it sound a lot more planful and thoughtful, but I think it's kind of cool. Act really allows for that. It's such a, it's such an organic and, you know, Steve Hayes often says, you know, like we act is really flexible. We do what works and often our clients teach us what works and what doesn't. And often what works for one client doesn't work for another. And so we learn that too. It's really, that's yeah. why the title of your podcast is so great. We got to be mentally flexible. Mm -hmm. Speaking of podcasts and you just, you've mentioned throughout here, some interviews that you've done and you've, how long have you been doing the podcast now? Um, about five and a half years. And I know that because I started when my youngest was six months old. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to track yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what? Not, not, maybe not phrase it in terms of like favorites, but when you think back on all the interviews that you've done, like what are like the, what are some that really stand out to you? That's a great question. There's so many. Honestly, this sounds like untrue, but I, I, I will name a few. But like this, it's such a cool gig. Uh, and I'm curious how, how you've been enjoying it. But it's 
you know, when I was in grad school, I like podcast didn't exist. I am old like that. It wasn't something I ever thought would be a part of my professional life. And it is something that brings me so much vitality. I love talk. Like I, I read a book, I geek out about a book. I'm like, Oh, it'd be so cool to talk to Oliver Berkman. Can I make that happen? And and then it's like this huge anxiety of, oh my God, I'm going to be talking to Oliver Berkman. I'm terrified. Um, but also I get to ask him all the questions that were running through my head as I was reading and how cool, like this is such an interesting, fun, dynamic life to get to talk to these, these people that are my superheroes. You know, many people haven't heard of the people that are my superheroes, but um, for me, they, they have such an impact on my life. Um, I'm just so some of them are, aren't like people that you would necessarily expect. I talked to Victoria Shepard who wrote this book called a history of delusions. And it was such it was, like in the conversation, both of us were like, this is so cool. Cause she's a historian, a social historian, and I'm a clinical psychologist. And we just kind of were giving each other insights of like, Oh, I had never thought about delusions in that way. Oh, I had never thought about how important history is in the context of the way that we do modern psychology. And so that was a really cool conversation. Another one that comes to mind is a conversation that I had with Brad Stolberg, who's a life, who, he's, a, he's a coach, not a therapist, but he wrote this book called The Practice of Groundedness that, that got sent to me. And it was like such a transformative book of like how we can be performing at our highest without losing our groundedness to our values and to our health and to our sustainability. And he he's just such a fun person to talk to. Another one just way back when, and I, I had mentioned to this to you before we started talking, my very first interview was with uh, the author of a book called Rest. And mm -hmm. Alex Sujan Kimpang is has become that's the author. It was I, I was terrified. I don't even think I knew what I was doing, but he became a friend and like a mentor. And he's just been hmm. along with me on this journey of writing. He's been a writing hmm. mentor and like helped me get connected and encouraged me and helped give me wisdom when I had no idea what I was doing. So the conversation was great. I'm sure I probably was so nervous. I wasn't totally present for it, but these relationships that come out of having these podcast conversations have just been so powerful. My friendships with my colleagues and co-hosts have been, you know, just so life affirming and wonderful. So those are, you know, I remember like the 200th episode that we did was with Angela Duckworth. I've never been so nervous because she's definitely, you know, she studies grit. Her book was so powerful. I was incredibly nervous to talk to her, but, um, it was such a fun conversation to be talking to one of my heroes. And yeah, I don't, it, so you've had, you're on episode 35, 36. Wow. I think you know better than me. Maybe, <laughs> so yeah, that sounds right. Your, your archives. <laughs> what, so we've had yeah, some overlap. Right. What are, what are some of the ones that rise to the top for you? <sighs> yeah. As, as I, you're, you were answering that. And as I asked the question, I realized maybe it's not necessarily a bad question, but yeah, the analogy that came through is almost like doing the podcast feels like going to a concert of one of my favorite artists where you like all the songs. And yeah, maybe some are like flashier or like ones you know better or something. But like, it's just like a whole experience that when you when you're 
done, you're not necessarily going back and like comparing like this song was great. This one was a little, you know, it's just like this whole like great ride that you get to go on and it's just experiencing them as they come. But uh, like you, my first one ever, which I guess was a, a bold ask in retrospect, but I had Steve Hayes on. He was my first interview that I did and I barely like knew how the recording systems for this work or uh, how nervous were you to do that (laughs) i was so nervous just on so many levels right of like you know whenever we do something new there's so many uncertainties and what ifs and questions like if the connection goes bad or my dog starts freaking out or whatever these things are i mess things up but yeah i definitely was nervous you could probably hear it in my voice but i thought we had a great conversation and we were kind of connected right away because we both he had a guitar in the background and so did I, and it was pretty cool. But, um, yeah, that was kind of both. It's so funny to, I remember when I asked him, cause he's like a hero of mine. And, uh, I wrote this like insanely long, like five paragraph essay style about like what he's meant to me to try to like, really try to get like pitch him coming on. And within like an hour, he replied and was just like, yeah, I'm busy as hell, but I'd love to do it. Like, it was just like, you know, I just like so overhyped this thing in my mind. And he's just such an accessible and cool person that uh, now I know that and he's come on again and we've, you know, kept a relationship going. But anyway, it's funny how we like mythologize these people that we really look up to and they are, they're brilliant and they've made huge contributions and they had such an impact on our lives, but also they're human. They're just people. And at the same time, so I recognize that I'm five and a half years into this gig. I've talked to so many people who I've realized are totally human and like I can relate to them on a person to person level. And still every single time I do a new interview, I, I freak out. And some of the people who are really my idols, I really, really freak out. And I always joke that I think I have this thought bubble of this thought. Like, if you could read my mind, it would say, I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. Does this question make any sense? Am, is, am I coherent? Does this person think I'm a total idiot? And yet I've been doing this for five and a half years. But I think this is where I act really comes in handy is that I'm able to say to myself, you know, this is just a sign of how important, how much I care yeah. about having these kind of the conversations how much I care about getting this information out in a way that is coherent, how much I care that people don't think I'm a dud. I mean, I I do want to be able to be bright enough to communicate these ideas and to, you know, be helpful using this platform. Um, And and there's no way that I'm not going to feel nervous. And and that that is going to be along for this incredible ride as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's just... um... I totally relate to that. And maybe that just shows uh, an inclusive nature to how our minds work and these types of things, especially when something's going to be public and, you know, other people are going to listen and evaluate and judge. And, but yeah, it's just like a, when I do this or when I perform music, there's, I just almost imagine that there's a little like radio sitting on my shoulder. That's just like the same old songs that play that I have to just make space for and let it say all those things. And, uh, and just not make it such an enemy. Yeah. I like that. I like that image of just having the radio on your shoulder. I have to say, I, as I was listening to some of your episodes, I was like, oh, this is going to be so cool because he's going to have a quote from me along with, you know, 
with his cool music jamming in the background. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah, you will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it, it really surprises me like the way like you, uh, that you were sincere when you came on and saying that you were a fan of the show and liked it. It's so weird to me when people say that, that I have on, like other people have said that too. And it, it is kind of a weird thing because it's such a, um, individual thing. It's just me talking a conversation I'm editing something and I put it out. So it's just like, sometimes it's, I forget that there's people listening and can, and maybe don't value myself enough or have a hard time, like accepting I don't know, positivity or something, but it can be weird to integrate that when people say that, like you almost like don't believe it. Like don't, your mind doesn't want you to believe yeah. it. So I have the same thing and I, I, I do feel like podcasting is a little funny. It does feel like it kind of goes into this void and you're not really sure how people are receiving it. Like I'm like, I'm not a musician obviously, but I'm sure that when you're on a stage playing, you, you can sort of see the reactions. Yeah. It's, different yeah. with podcasting yes but when you do get that feedback and you're like whoa like i had an impact it, it is sort of startling and hard to believe and part of me thinks that's great because it keeps you humble <laughs> like yeah. every time i yeah. receive feedback about my book i'm so excited and also like I, there's part of me that questions it and then i sort of embrace that i think it's like a way that i embrace my imposterism i think it's good it helps me stay humble and, and not, I, I don't know. It's a little bit like the anxiety I get before I podcast. Like I don't want to take it for granted that people will think I'm impactful. I want to keep trying hard and doing good work and not make it this about ego. Yeah. Yeah. You're so right about the differences too with podcasting or writing a book versus music and not that I'm, you know, <laughs> selling out shows or doing anything big, but like, you know, I've played live a lot and, whether it's just at like a bar or a little played at yoga classes and just done little things. But when immediately after you have a person in front of you that you can like lock eyes with and they can share something and you can sense their sincerity or lack of it. And it's such a different thing than when someone like writes an email or to, I don't know, it's, but maybe that's also a good, uh, it is a good way to stay humble because you can maybe imagine the psychology of somebody who every night had like hundreds of people coming up to them and saying that that's that must be do something to our minds and our emotions. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> we're short on time, so yeah, yeah. Sorry, I realized I <laughs> we I, I probably got us off track from talking about role conflict, which was what I was here no, to talk about. I was just talking about humility no, this is and good. egos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Part two coming up. Yeah. No, but this is, I, these are my favorite podcasts where we just kind of trust the moment and it goes different places. So I hope you also enjoyed it. I did so much. Thank you so much for having me on. What a fun conversation. Uh, of course. I'd love to have you back one day too. Um, would you want to just share how people can connect with you and share a little, the title of your book again? Sure. The title of the book is Work, Parent, Thrive. 12 science-backed strategies to ditch guilt, manage overwhelm, and grow connection when everything feels like too much. And you can get the book wherever you get buy books, but uh, you can also look at my website, workparentthrive.com, for more information. And then you can also uh, check out my podcast, which is Psychologists Off the Clock, and you can get that wherever you get podcasts. Uh, wherever you get Tom's podcast, <laughs> you can probably also get ours. <laughs> you're probably subscribed to both already if you're listening to this. So <laughs> right. Just keep listening. Yeah.
<laughs> All right, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my greed.